Shawnee and welcome back to Lawless Scotland podcast. So if you haven't already, before you listen to this episode, you need to listen to Pierre Manuel part one. Because if you don't listen to that, this is not going to make any sense. Stop, pause. If you haven't listened to the first one, go back, listen to the first one. No point in listening to this one. I'm warning you now, there's no point. Because you've missed half the story. You've missed all the juicy good bits. So go back, listen to part one. So that's your pre-warning. Just saying. Just saying. That's your pre-warning. Now last time in last week's intro, I told you all about the fact that one of my friends that has lived in this town that I live in now all her life told me that this house was the murder house. Well, I can tell you right now that I have no update on that because for me, it's the same day recording the last episode. So no updates, I'm afraid, but hopefully in next week's episode, I'll have an update. So we left off with Mary was attacked by Manuel. They had went to court. Manuel had fabricated this whole flamboyant story of a different version of events from Mary where he was saying that they were actually in a relationship and they had just fell out and they were going to set rabbit traps. Whereas Mary's story was that she was violently attacked by Manuel, the the truth story. And he got away with it, unfortunately. And the jury came in with a not guilty verdict just on the fact that there wasn't enough evidence. The jury was leaning more towards the prosecution side in Mary's story, but there just wasn't enough evidence to convict. And we left off with Mary getting abuse and all sorts of dislike by the locals due to the fact that the not guilty came back and they thought she was lying. So it wasn't a... It wasn't a sweet deal for Mary, for sure. Like, I feel terrible for that woman. So jump forward to the mid-1950s East Kilbride, which I told you before. It is just south of Glasgow. And I told you before that this is Scotland's new town. It was built to move people from the slums of the tenement housing in Glasgow into this new town by 1955 there was about 400 new homes approximately built and the gas board gangs had been digging pipes for the gas pipe work to bring gas supplies to all these new homes and one of the gangs was Peter Manuel working with his father the labourers at the time when they were working they had a small hut which housed their equipment and offered shelter when it was really bad weather because obviously it's Scotland and we probably have the worst weather in the world one minute. I'll give you a perfect example. Yesterday was recorded as the hottest day of the year so far. This morning I woke up to lashing rain on the window. I'm thinking no way is that rain. Like It was the hottest day of the year so far yesterday. I'm sunburnt. What on earth? Opened the curtains to grey skies. Absolutely torrential rain. Like monsoon rain. And like that that was the difference in not even 24 hours. That's crazy. And now we're sitting at like half past 12 in the afternoon. And the sun's out. And there's no sign of rain. What? It's just crazy. That's Scotland for you. It's never the same. It'll probably snow by six o'clock at night, to be honest. Like, it would not surprise me at all. So this is why these people needed 
these kind of small huts and things to offer them shelter because Scotland is crazy and the weather is unpredictable. In times before we had TV, uh, before TV got widespread as like the main source of entertainment, so obviously back in the 50s, you only had a telly if you had money and things, you know? It would be local dances in rural areas, like Friday, Saturday nights, that the young people would go and meet new friends and hang out with their friends or find their their future love. There was no such thing as like Saturday night telly, sitting in with your friends, having a couple of drinks in the house, watching Ant and Dex Saturday night takeaway or whatever the what's the what's the things in America like the late late show or with James Corden, I quite like that one, and uh, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, there's not that kind of thing. So it is dances. That's what preoccupies people. They go local dance. That's what happens. Annie Nealands was a tall, pretty athletic 17-year-old who lived with her family in converted stables on the Calderwood estate. She worked in a garment factory, and her family was like really religious, highly Catholic. She attended St. Joseph's in Blantyre School. She was a really popular member of a group of young people that attended the dances every week. On the 30th of December 1955, she had been to the dance with her sister Alice. They started talking to two young men who were on leave from the army and the man that Annie was talking to was called Andrew Murin. Annie had made plans with him to meet him on the 2nd of January at 6pm at a local bus stop round the corner from her house. Andrew had been drinking heavily like the whole of his leave and he didn't remember the plans that he made to meet Annie that night. Around 6pm on the 2nd of January, Annie's waiting at the end of a dark, unlit road for Andrew. The 614 bus came and went, and at 6.20, a cold and angry Annie, being stood up by Andrew, went to a friend's house just up the road from the bus stop called The Simpsons. So she's away to The Simpsons' house. She chatted with Missy Simpson until the next bus was due to arrive, which was about 6.44pm, and this bus is heading towards East Kilbride from Calderwood area. She took the bus three minutes up the road to a local cafe, thinking that maybe Andrew had mistaken the meeting point and was waiting for her there. At 7.10, she got back on the bus, back in the direction she originally came from, after being stood up because she decided to return home. This was the last time that she was seen alive. When Annie didn't return home after being out at night, her parents were not initially worried because it wasn't unusual for a 17-year-old to spend the night with friends if they had missed the last bus or if the weather got bad. Because even though she's only taken the bus three minutes up the road, which would definitely be a walkable distance, if it's late at night, women don't walk at that time by themselves. It's not like necessarily deemed the proper thing to do. And also, like I said before, Scotland's weather is so unpredictable, you wouldn't make that journey. You would stay at a friend's house, you know? So it wasn't unusual for this to happen. 
And obviously there was no mobile telephones or anything back then. They also don't really have house phones either. Like again, you have to kind of have a little bit of money to have a house phone. Usually people would go into the pay phone to make a phone call to someone that had a phone to ask them to go and tell your parents that you weren't coming home and things like that. And it's just as well. Or you might not even know anybody with a telephone to be able to do that. So again, I mean... If you need an ambulance or anything, you're going to the payphone to use it. You know, that's that kind, it's that kind of thing. But when she didn't arrive home in the morning is when our parents really started to worry. Because usually, if you had been out for the night and things like that, and you did have to stay at a friend's house for whatever reason, you would be home first thing in the morning, like for the breakfast table, basically. Like, you're getting up super early. There's none of this when we're out bevying now and out drinking and you're sleeping into 12 and stuff none of that none of that back then so they informed the police of her being missing a 49 year old labourer called george gibbons was in poor health and liked to take walks across the golf course this is when he discovered annie's body face down amongst the trees it was apparent to him that the body had been dragged there by the ankles her skirt had ridden up and her tweed coat was a mess. He saw that she had head injuries and that she was clearly dead. A clear trail of footprints showed that she was running through the field for her life. It was said that she had not been raped, but there was stains of ejaculation on her clothing. Her hands showed scratching and bruising, and her clothes were really badly torn. Her pants were missing, and the cause of death was reported to be a blow to the head because the vault of her skull was completely caved in. The police was on the case again, and did go and question Manuel, but his father gave him an alibi. On the 4th of January, PC Mar visited a gang of the Gasboard workmen to collect evidence. He noticed that one of the men had scratches on his face. This was Peter. He claimed that he'd gotten them in a fight in Glasgow on New Year's. Others also saw these scratches and it was noted as evidence by the police but the matter went no further. Fast forward to the 11th of January, he was then suspected to be the killer of Anne Steele. Anne lived on the top floor flat in Deniston in Glasgow. She worked as a bookkeeper and her neighbours described her as a smartly dressed middle-aged spinster. At about 8pm on January 11th, 1956, downstairs neighbours heard crashing and banging noises which caused them alarm. These noises made them run upstairs to her door. They found it locked and called the police. Once they gained entry, they found the dead body of Miss Steele. She had sustained head injuries and on a windowsill they found a bloodstained poker from the fireplace, clearly the murder weapon. The bathroom window was open and it was suspected that the killer had escaped by climbing the 60 foot drop down the drain pipe. The police had issued a description of a young man who was seen walking away from the direction of the flat, believing that he would have bloodstained clothing and scratches on his face. Nobody was ever arrested for the crime. On the 15th of June 1956, there was another murder of a prostitute who went by the name of English Nell, or Ellen Peartree. She was found stabbed to death in a back street city centre in Glasgow. She bled to death from a knife wound to the thigh. Earlier she was seen with a dark-haired young man, but there was no arrest in this case, but it's highly likely to be Peter also. On the 12th of September, Mr and Mrs Henry Platt and their son Geoffrey left their house in Bodwell. 
a small town less than half a mile away from Peter's house in Birkinshaw. They left to go on a holiday down in the Lake District. Days later, police received a report of a break-in at the Platt's house. The intruder had heated up some soup, poured it on the floor. He had also opened tins of pears, drunk the juice and tipped the contents out onto the floor. Upstairs, there was a jug containing some of the soup just left there and there was muddy boot prints all over the bed sheets where somebody had clearly laid down, as well as some blackened holes on the quilt and blankets of cigarette burns. There was an eight-inch slit that had been made in the mattress as well with a pair of scissors. When the plats returned home and they checked what had been stolen, they listed a very special electric razor as being one of the missing items. It was a prototype, like an experimental electric razor, and it was one of only 50 in a batch from the Phillips Electrical Factory in Hamilton. Mr Pratt had bought it for his son, so it was quite easy to track down an item like that if it was one of only 50 as well. The thief had also stolen cash and a number of other items, but he had left a pile of items in one of the rooms downstairs that he was obviously collating to go through or maybe was planning on coming back to steal them at a later date, but obviously it was reported. So whatever the reason, there was a pile of things in one of the downstairs rooms that were like set aside. The police had said that whoever carried out the robbery was obviously skilled because there was no fingerprints found around the house and the break-in didn't attract any attention at the time. More crimes of this nature as well were reported to the police at the same time. Less than a week later in Burnside was the family home of the Watts family. William Watt owned a chain of several shops in the Glasgow area, Dean Home Bakeries. His wife, Marion, 45 years, had been in poor health for a number of years. On the 9th of September, William Watt left the home on a fishing holiday. Mrs Watt had invited her sister, Mrs Margaret Brown, to stay while William was away and her daughter Vivian also stayed behind. On the 17th of September, Monday morning, a home helper, Helen Coylston, showed up as usual at the house. She went to enter the house from the back door, which Vivian usually left opened on her way to college in the morning. But on this occasion, strangely to Helen's surprise, the door was locked. She chapped on the windows, but there was no response. She asked the postman who was passing, Peter Collier, to assist her as she noticed that one of the glass panels on the front door had been smashed. He opened the door by putting his hand through the broken glass and opening the Yale lock. What they found inside was completely gruesome. In Mrs Watt's bedroom, her and her sister were clearly dead. Blood was coming from their noses and their mouths. They lay side by side with gunshots clearly visible from their heads. The bed sheets had been pulled up to their chin. It was clear that they had been killed while they were sleeping. In the other bedroom, Vivian was laid out with a quilt drawn up to her chin and she'd been shot in the head as well. Though her room, there was signs of a struggle. There was a stubbed out cigarette found on the carpet and Helen and Peter, who discovered the bodies, both heard four loud snorts coming from Vivian, which were death noises, which if you don't know, it's, it's quite common for 
dead bodies to make noises as well. So that was clearly shocking for both of them. And Helen didn't take that very well at all. So she was distraught by this point. They phoned the police, obviously. When the police arrived and they're doing their investigations and things, they they realised that the sisters definitely had like a quick death. They had their pyjamas ripped and torn to expose their genitalia. No, no sexual interference was found. It was thought that, once again, this was a murder where the killer had indulged himself without actually going to the extent of rape or interfering with the dead body if you know what I mean. Mrs Watt was shot on the right side of the face and Mrs Brown was shot just below the right eye. The killer almost touched the face with the gun. There was powder burns on their skin and a split was a type of crucifix wound so that's how they know that he was so close to them when he shot them. Time of death was said to be between 4am and 6am. Vivian's death had been a bit more drawn out. She had bruises on her chin and bruising to her pubic area and her right arm had been twisted behind her back. She had been shot through the left temple at contact range. She had not been raped but there was a possibility that she was tormented and tortured by her killer before being shot. Heavy. Heavy. That's all I can say. Like, oh god. I mean... It's just sick and twisted, isn't it? Really. So obviously with a crime of this nature and how gruesome it was, the media coverage was massive. Like the central focus was on William Watt, even though he had an alibi of where he went up fishing. The public were so divided though. Some thought him to be the criminal villain and the story surely to be a part of his family's deaths but others looked on him with sympathy as obviously his whole family has just been murdered while he was away on a fishing trip. His brother-in-law and husband to the sister who was the victim had been contacted the day of the murder to try and get background details on the family before William was even notified of the wife's death. Because he's still up on his fishing holiday. At this point, he has no idea that this has happened. The police haven't contacted him yet. But yet, they're doing the investigations into him already by trying to get the background of the brother-in-law. Whilst the investigation of the Walthouse murders were underway, just up the street, two unmarried sisters lived at number 18. A neighbour noted that the house front door, the house's front door glass panel was smashed in the same Monday at about half past two in the afternoon. The two sisters were on holiday at the same time. The neighbour immediately alerted the police that were down the street when she noticed the break-in of number 18. Inside the Martin sisters' home, they found that there had been a break-in. A tin of soup had been opened and poured onto the floor. A tin of spaghetti had been emptied. Orange pips and peels were scattered around the house as well. The rooms had been ransacked and cigarettes had been put out all over the carpets. Muddy footprints were found on the couch. One of the beds were disturbed, indicating that somebody had lain there or maybe slept there for a while. 
and the only thing that we're missing was two rings, nylon tights and a small amount of money. So obviously with this happening on the same morning of the house, Mr and Mrs Watts family home at number five, number 18 had this really strange break-in where the time was, it was well known that these very peculiar break-ins of like soup getting poured on the carpet, cigarette burns everywhere, someone sleeping in other people's beds and only a small amount of things getting stolen. It's strange that both of these things happen on the same street so obviously the police are drawing some kind of connection between the two. Peter Manuel was suspected of course. Massive pressures on the police led to many searches of his home but they never found anything any time they searched his home. Police suspected that Peter's ammo was to mess up people's houses. So with them not finding anything with Peter, they soon turned their focus onto William Watt, the husband. Two witnesses came forward to say that they saw him driving back towards Glasgow on the Sunday night. He was arrested on the 27th of September and he was sent to Berlini prison. The police had to find more evidence against him though and what was definitely not squeaky clean. There was allegations floating about that his business had ran on stolen flour and that he was involved in like business criminals, career criminals. So the police set out to prove that Mr Watt could have left the hotel on Sunday night, committed the murder and drive back. Two police officers did the south drive in two hours from the hotel to Burnside where he lived. On the 2nd of October, Peter would find himself in jail again. This was only around a week after Mr Watt was sent to Berlin. Manuel appeared in Hamilton Sheriff Court because on the 23rd of March 1956, he and an accomplice had broken into the canteen of the coal mine, less than half a mile from Peter's home. They stole 4,800 cigarettes and a cash box. The police had received a tip-off and were waiting for the pair when they tried to escape. They arrested the other man at the scene, but Peter escaped. He was eventually captured, but surprisingly he was let out on bail. In July, the police received a call about two men robbing a house. They arrived and the men scattered. One fled and the other was caught after he jumped over a fence and broke his foot. The injured man, Joe Brennan, was arrested but refused to give up his accomplice, Peter Manuel. This proved his loyalty to Peter and he played a big role in things to come. In his trial for the canteen robbery, Peter defended himself once again. He found an alibi and got his mother on the stand again as a character witness. It didn't work this time though and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. This was all down to the fact that one of his criminal friends that he'd hoped to be an alibi was a no-show and this guy had information about Peter because he Peter had shown him the two rings that he'd stole from the Martin sisters house, number 18 and it was assumed that Peter was frightened that this friend who was called Talis would betray him to the police because obviously if police find out that Peter had the two gold rings stolen from the Martin sisters house 
then it could link him to the murders at the Watts house because one of their theories was that it was connected. The other theory was that it was Mr. Watt. But either way, Peter's not wanting the police to find out that he was connected with either of them, obviously. On October 8th, 1956, Peter actually contacted Mr. Watt's solicitor, Lawrence Dowell, by letter asking him to defend him in his appeal. He said in the letter, I have some information for you concerning a recently acquired client of yours described as an all-round athlete. Dow went to Berlini and advised Manuel about the appeal process. What Manuel said to Lawrence would bring Manuel right in the frame for the Watts murders. If he had not talked to Lawrence, there's a possibility that he would never have been caught and hanged. Lawrence then went on to tell the police of the conversation that he had with Manuel. He said, I then asked him what was the other business about, which he wanted to see me for, to which he replied, it's about what. Manuel said what was not guilty because I know the man who did it. Dill asked him why he didn't tell the police and Manuel replied that he didn't trust the police and that the police were just out to get him, especially Inspector Hendry. The back and forth between Dowell and Manuel continued, each time Peter telling Dowell more and more details and information about the robbery at 18 and the murders at number 5 in Burnside, providing details that even the police had not given out to the public, such as the fact that Mrs Brown had been shot twice. There was no way that he could have known any of this unless he was the killer himself or as he was saying that the killer had told him the details of the crime. He admitted to getting rid of the gun and the rings saying that he could show Dill where the guns were if he could get him out on bail that coming Friday. If he couldn't get him out on bail then there was no deal. Dowell knew of Peter's history, his romanticising and his exaggerations, so he didn't take Peter very seriously when he was coming out with all this information, though he did pass on to the police whatever he had said. As it was Dill's word against Manuel, when the police came to check on Manuel, Peter didn't like Peter Manuel didn't say a word to the police. Because again, he doesn't trust the police in any way and he's trying to make this deal to get himself out of prison right now. So why would he just tell the police everything that he told Dill when the whole point was to get Dill to get him out on bail and then he was going to show them where the, the gun and the rings were and reveal who his source was. Also, Inspector Hendry, the police officer, was refusing to entertain the possibility that he'd put Watt in Berlin for nothing, that they, that he had got the wrong guy, basically. So he took everything that was being said with, like, a pinch of salt and was just like, oh, it's just Peter, like, making up stories again, over-exaggerating, just trying to get out of prison or whatever on a deal. So he didn't take it serious because he didn't want to look like a failure. Fast forward two months later and Mr. Watt was released. There was not enough evidence to convict him. Peter then got out in the December. He travelled to Newcastle on December 7th, 1957 
uh, around half past four in the morning, he hired a local taxi driver, 36-year-old Sidney Dunn. And the next day, he was found by a policeman shot in the head and his throat was slashed. There is doubt around this account, though, so it isn't widely known that Sidney Dunn, the taxi driver, was definitely a victim of Peter. It is just suspected but never confirmed. Peter's next victim was Isabel Cook. In 1957, December 28, the 17-year-old left her home in Mount Vernon to go to a dance in nearby Uddingston Grammar School. Peter stalked and attacked and sexually assaulted and strangled Isabel on the same footpath that he had attacked the young mother 10 years earlier. So if you think back to the first account of an attack in the first episode, it was the young mother of three with her children there that he attacked. This is the exact same footpath. He buried her body in a nearby field. Just a few days later, Peter broke into the home of Peter Smart and his wife Doris and 10-year-old son Michael. Peter shot all three of them in the head while they were in their beds. Same ammo as the Watts murder. Peter then calmly fed the family cat, ate some biscuits and left the house with just £20. He also took the family car. And it's believed, right, shock, it's believed that he stopped to give a young police officer a lift to work in the family car that he just killed. I mean, you have to have some balls to do that, don't you? Like, you must think you're something special. It's just wild. Wild. I would be avoiding, avoiding the police. Not giving them a lift to work. Anyway, despite not being initially linked to these murders, eventually his carelessness due to the need for attention, being centre of attention everything else it did link him to these murders and eventually proved to be his downfall police started to connect the dots of all the different murders like the smart family murder to the Watt family murder and then peter's letters from prison about the Watt case to the lawyer devil and his accusations he was then found to be using some of the new £5 notes he stole from Peter Smart's house. The the £20 was all in brand new £5 notes. So this is quite rare to be walking about with like brand new notes at that time. And that gave the police enough evidence to act. In January 1958, the police arrested Peter at his parents' home. When he was arrested, Peter even told the police that he would clear everything up for them once he told his parents what he'd done. He then confessed to the killings of Annie Nealands, Marion Watt, Vivian Watt, Margaret Brown, Isabel Cook, Peter, Doris and Michael Smart. After his arrest, Peter took detectives to the spot where he'd buried Isabel Cook. It was reported that he guided detectives to the shallow grave and he calmly stated that he was standing on her now. Okay, Peter. 
He also showed them exactly where he'd thrown guns into the River Clyde and guns were recovered and then entered on evidence. Despite all this, Peter refused to plead guilty, claiming that he'd been coerced into making a confession. A trial date was set for May 1958. Peter once again decided to defend himself with a skill that was noted by the judge as being quite remarkable for his time. Because remember, he's a storyteller. He's flamboyant. He's centre stage. Peter Manuel. In this trial, he claimed that he was being continuously persecuted by the police. And that's the only reason why he was there. On direct examination with several of the police officers involved... He accused them of coercing his confession and threatening to implement him and his family in the murders if he did not confess to them himself. He also called his mother as a witness and asked her to recall details of the search on the house and the interviews by the police. Finally, Peter announced that he would testify on his own behalf after taking the oath. He asked questions and then he answered them himself. He was then cross-examined by the prosecutor and at the end of his testimony, he made a two and a half hour long non-stop summation, which someone worked out to be like 200 words per minute in total. He spent over six hours in the witness box. He he just loved to talk. Like, this guy just loved to talk and put on that show. And that is clear. Despite all of his accusations, the jury spent less than three hours deliberating and convicting him of the seven counts of murder, although the charge of the murder of Annie Nealans was dropped due to the lack of insufficient evidence. But we know he done it. He just wasn't charged for it. Peter was Scotland's first convicted serial killer and he was sentenced to death. His last meal was fish and chips with tea and brandy and he was hanged in Berlini prison on the 11th of July 1958 at 31 years old. It was also reported that his last words were turn up the radio and I'll go quietly. Well, the world is a better place without you, Mr. Peter Manuel, because although he was only convicted of seven murders, it's thought that his body count could be anything up to 20. And that was literally the only ones that he confessed of. He wasn't even charged with Annie Nealon's murder because of lack of evidence. But in the end, any victim of Peter Manuel got the justice that they deserved because he was taken off the street and if he wosn't a hundred percent a hundred and ten percent this guy would have just kept carrying on until he was caught you know like it's one of those he was like a fully fledged serial killer at this point like complete psychopath that was just doing whatever he wanted to do you know so Thank God he was taken off the streets when he was because, like, he was only 31 when he was hanged. So he still was, like, he wasn't, like, an old man that was probably not going to be 
up to much. He was like in the prime, you know? So I could only imagine what he would have escalated to even further if he wasn't caught at the time when he was caught. It was, yeah, just absolutely crazy. I mean, that is Scotland's worst serial killer, in my opinion, so far. So far, because there's there's always the next one, isn't there? Scotland's first convicted serial killer, Peter Manuel. Let me know what you guys think. Let me know if there's anything in that case that I maybe missed. Is there something out there that I didn't cover? Because it's entirely possible. I hope not, because I've done a lot of research on this one. But there's always something, you know. I read... The Beast of Birkinshore, Life of a Serial Killer, Peter Manuel by Jack Smith. And that's available on Amazon if you guys want to read more. There's loads of stuff in that book that obviously I just couldn't add in because then we'd be here for like five hours. And I also read Peter Manuel, Serial Killer by Hector McLeod and Malcolm McLeod. And again, there's just loads of stuff in both of those books. So... If you guys want to have a read at either of those, I recommend both. I also found some stuff on glasgolive.co.uk if you guys want to check out a bit more there. And obviously Murderpedia. Um, I also listened to the episode that Skinwalker Podcast did on this as well. And I would totally recommend going to listen to Skinwalker Podcast because that guy has a well smooth Scottish accent. And it's like eerie you know like when when you listen to skinwalker podcast it is like it sets the scene you know whereas over here we're like bright and bubbly and we have a wee chat but skinwalker podcast is like the one that gives you goosebumps it's good and i also watched a youtube video by the crime reel so that is the references i have from this episode because it was such a big one that i felt like i had to like really dive into it listen to a couple podcasts and youtube videos and read the books just to kind of get a sense of what was going on with this guy because it was yeah i think if that happened this day there would be like a lot of psychological analysis on this guy that we could dive into and you know but it was back in the 50s like it wasn't that well regarded back then like mental health and stuff or looking into the minds of a sociopath you know i don't know if he was a sociopath or a psychopath psychopath i would imagine to be honest so yeah check out the the places that i got the references for if you feel so inclined because it was a good wealth of knowledge for me and again as always can you please leave a review wherever you're listening it helps me out so much to let me know that i'm on the right track and i just love to hear if you are enjoying it as well which i hope you are (laughs) and again there will be more pictures uploaded on instagram so head over there and you can see for yourself how creepy this guy looks in these pictures like creepy 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 i will be on twitter as well talking about the case with anyone that wants to have a chat about it so just come on to one of the posts advertising this episode and let me know what you think. Just ha- let's have a chat about it. Thanks so much, guys, for all your love and support so far. And I will see you in the next one. Bye.